Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. We are honored this week to be joined by one of the legendary songwriters of the Brill-building era, Jeff Barry. Working alongside his then-wife Ellie Greenwich, the songs they wrote are a Mount Rushmore-level string of hits that continue to stand the test of time to this day. Songs like Do Wa Diddy, Da Do Ron Ron, Hanky Panky, Then He Kissed Me, Be My Baby, Chapel of Love, River Deep Mountain High, and Leader of the Pack. After his partnership with Ellie ended, Jeff continued to churn out hit after hit with songs he wrote, like the Archie's Sugar Sugar and the iconic theme song to the TV show The Jeffersons, We're Moving On Up, as well as songs he produced, like the number one classic I'm a Believer for the Monkees. Jeff has been credited with helping to create three distinct genres of music. The Brill-building sound, alongside of Ellie Greenwich, Carol King, Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann, and Cynthia Weil, the girl group sound of the 1960s working with Phil Spector and Shadow Morton, and the bubblegum pop sound of the late 60s and early 70s with songs by the Archies and the Monkees. Artists who have recorded Jeff's songs are a who's who of music's best, from Elton John, U2, and the Beach Boys, to the Ramones, Freddie Mercury, and the Carpenters. Jeff's success has continued ever since, leading to his induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1991, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Academy of Songwriters in 1998, and induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a recipient of the prestigious Amit Erdogan Award in 2010. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. My name is Pete Ganberg. I'm the head of A&R at Atlantic Records, and I am thrilled to host one of the most legendary songwriter, producer, creators of all time from his home in California. Welcome, Jeff Barry. Hi, Jeff. Good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> How you doing? Nice, nice to be here. You know, I was telling you a couple of minutes ago before we went live that we call this program Rock and Roll High School for a reason. The goal is to teach our listeners about the history of contemporary music as told by the people who helped create it. And I can honestly say that our goal in doing that would not be complete without talking to you. So thank you for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, it can be argued that you had a role in creating three distinct genres of music. You know, we talked about right before we went live that we're on Broadway and 50th Street and way back when Broadway between 49th and 50th, 1619 Broadway was the Brill Building. That's where you and Ellie Greenwich worked out of. So we can say the Brill Building sound is something created by yourself and Ellie and, and Goffin and King and Man and Weil and Sadak and Greenfield. We could also talk about the girl group sound was a sound that you helped create with Phil Spector and, and Ellie with the Crystals and the Ronettes and Darlene. Love and, and all that stuff. And also later, the bubblegum sound are also called bubblegum blues. You know, when you think about these things, and for those who may not know the name Jeff Barry, you certainly know his songs. And in the course of this conversation, when you hear these titles, you should make a running tally of the songs that we mention and how long they have been in your consciousness, because I cannot remember a time without knowing these songs. They're, they're part of the ether, you know? So I want to get into all of that. Some accolades that you've received, Jeff, before we start. You were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame with Ellie in 1991. You were inducted by Carol King into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, in 2010. You received the Ahmed Erdogan Award and accepting for you in your absence was our former podcast guest, Steve Van Zant. In 1998, 
you received the Lifetime Achievement from the National Academy of Songwriters, an organization where you served as president. And some of your songs have been among BMI's most performed songs of the entire 20th century. Those include Sugar Sugar, Leader of the Pack, Be My Baby. You know, that, that's a nice preamble, don't you think? We could end it right here. Okay, nice. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, it was fun. I wish I knew it was happening when it was happening. I heard you say, Jeff, that if you knew it was happening when it was happening, you would have taken more pictures. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, you can't teach songwriting, I, but uh, it's more about encouraging songwriting and, and how important music is in general. And But the advice I can give is take pictures and save everything. Right. Appreciate the moment, right? Absolutely. But in the physical sense, save save those yellow pads. Or I guess nowadays everybody's putting their lyrics in, into a laptop, but don't let anything happen to them. Right. Because I do remember when I got a call from someone who was doing a uh, putting together a coffee table book and they wanted to know if I had any of my handwritten lyrics. So I'm basically a lyricist, melody second, and chords distant third. Right. But I didn't save all of that stuff. So save everything and take pictures. Yeah, totally. I mean, one thing I've noticed in, in the interviews of you that I've read and, and listened to, when all the hits were happening, it was going very, very fast. You talk about the year specifically from 1963 to 1970 as being completely not so crazy. Um, and it doesn't sound like you ever had the time to sit back and realize what impact the music you were creating was having on the public. Have you ever had a chance since to think about it? Like, literally, if these songs never existed, the world as we know it would be a different place. You know, you ever think about that? Well, I, if you're, are you talking about my songs? Yes. You say? Yeah, specifically okay. your songs. All right. Well, the scientist in me and the, the logical part of me says if there, there always were and always will be 100 songs in the top 100. So I would imagine realistically if I didn't exist and those songs didn't exist, my catalog didn't exist, some other catalog would. I, I, they would still, there wouldn't have been holes in the charts. I get that. But let me, for those who don't know, just read off some of the titles that you either wrote, co-wrote, or in some cases produced in no particular order. Be My Baby, Then He Kissed Me, Iko Iko, Chapel of Love, The Do Ron Ron, Do Wah Diddy, Leader of the Pack, Hanky Panky, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, Remember Walking in the Sand, Baby I Love You, Sugar Sugar, I Honestly Love You. I mean, just think about it, you know, and, that, and that's just scratching the surface. But all of those songs were created or in part co-created by you. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Fact. Talk about how you came to songwriting. You were born in Brooklyn in, in the late 30s. And was music always a part of your life? Well, music was always a background in my early childhood. My father was blind or sightless, as he would say. He used to say, blind people don't understand. <laughs> um, and, and he would play the piano, and I learned early on a little, little piano, but it, there were no piano lessons, music lessons. But um, in my early family situation, which they got divorced when I was seven, my, my mom had a lot to deal with, with obviously a, a, a blind husband and a, my older sister is mentally handicapped. So I, I kind of stayed in the background and just fantasized and waited for something good to happen. And um, so I was always making up stuff, you know, in my head, stories. And basically, I'm a storyteller. And, and uh, uh, that's what songwriting is to me, telling a story. And I'm, they're all very visual to me. Whatever I'm writing about, I'm picturing happening in, in a cinematic sense. Did you know at the time that the songs that you were listening to, or you know, even St. Louis Blues, was actually composed 
by a songwriter, or was that not something in your in your line of thinking yet? I never thought about that. Um, I, I just don't know. I, I I didn't have access to my own choice of music. What songs do you remember hearing back then, Jeff? I remember hearing songs like uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky, which uh, lyrically is, is one of the most strikingly visual songs about the ghost herd, the, the devil's herd, and their brands were still on fire and their hoofs were made of steel. Very cinematic stuff. Well, I heard as a kid that you were fascinated by all things cowboy. So that probably played into that and maybe even planted the seeds for the future country hits that you would write later on. I'm still a cowboy. <laughs> Didn't you used to wear cowboy boots in Manhattan? Absolutely. I, I And it wasn't an affectation. I have pictures I can send you of me <laughs> with, with like uh, the, the monkeys, you know, where I'm in my cowboy hat and boots and... I, I did that until uh, Midnight Cowboy came out. Right. And everybody was doing it. A quick story about, you want to hear a quick story about Midnight Cowboy? Absolutely. I got a call from, I, I, is John Schlesinger? I the think director of the movie, sure. Um, I, I was like, you know, Jeff Barry at the time. And, and they wanted me to write uh, uh, an opening song for the movie. I met with him at his office and uh, they set up a screening for me. And, and John had um, tempt all the music, right. temporary right. songs to put all through the movie, things that he liked. And that's the screening they set up for me. So I saw the movie, went back to his office, and, and I said, John, I can write you a song, sure, but I, I can't write you the song you have put in there, which was Everybody's Talking at Me. The Harry Nelson song, yeah. Absolutely. That's what he tempted in the movie. And I said, nobody sits down to write that. <laughs> I said, I'd like, to, I'd like to find out, you know, what he was uh, imbibing at the time or whatever. Well, but it, I, it worked out for John and it worked out for Harry, for sure. And I, and I said, you know, I love everything you did. But I, I, you know, I, I'm all for the product, uh, you know. And I said, I, I, I think you should use what you have. And I remember he cocked his head and he said to me, are you talking yourself out of writing the title song for, for this movie? It's going to be a big movie. I said, well, no, that's not my intent, but that's fine. Because I, I really don't think I could do better. Right. There you go. That's so why song is in that movie and that's why it was never nominated for an oscar because one of the qualifications that's interesting it was a pre-existing song mm. yes song written for the film which that wasn't interesting so talk about getting your first publishing deal you attended city college you dropped out you started studying industrial design but you wanted to pursue music then you went into the army talk about getting your first publishing deal with arnold shaw and his role in your career Right. Well, I met Arnold Shaw, the a publisher of a small, small but good publishing company, um, through a friend of a friend. Who, at the time, I really wanted to be an entertainer. So he, as a favor, said he would listen to The Kid, uh, which I was at the time. I think I was probably 19. Right. You know, I played a couple of songs I wrote with the two chords I knew. And uh, he said, you only knew two chords, huh? And I said, yeah. I mean, that's how the movie will go anyway. <laughs> he said, uh, well, you know, you sing fine, but uh, what are those songs? I said, well, I made them up. And as a music publisher, he was more interested in the songs than right. the singing. Right. He did introduce me to Hugo and Luigi at RCA. and We did make a horrible record with me as the artist. But I did write my first big hit for Ray Peterson, who Hugo and Luigi at RCA were producing at the time. For those of, of our listeners who may not know the names Hugo and Luigi, they are probably most famous for writing Can't Help Falling in Love for Elvis. They were also staff guys at RCA, 
And not only did they produce you as an artist, but they cut Tell Laura I Love Her for Ray Peterson, which was a bigger hit in England when Ricky Valance covered it. For anyone who doesn't know the song Tell Laura I Love Her, it's lovingly referred to as a death disc because it's a narrative song about a stock car race gone wrong. Uh, Hugo and Luigi also cut Sam Cooke's first single for RCA with a song that you wrote called Teenage Sonata. Yes, that one I wrote myself. Uh, Hugo and Luigi called Arnold Shaw to see if the kid might have anything for Sam Cooke. And I had just finished a song called Teenage Sonata based on Moonlight Sonata and hadn't had a chance to make a demo yet. So we ended up playing it. I ended up sitting at a piano in Hugo and Luigi's office playing it for Sam Cooke and his people live and i'm not a musician so i was probably singing with my tongue sticking out but i went through this very slow ballet corny as hell and uh, when i was done i turned around on the bench i'll never forget uh, arnold shaw said does anybody want to hear it again and sam cook said yes i do wow so i played it again and it was his first single for rca here here in the moonlight Hold me while I sing to you My teenage sonata Of my love Eternally true This laboriously slow, corny ballad And it was like molasses going up the charts I could see RCA finally going We can't stand it anymore And put out some mid-up-tempo song, I forget what. Huh. We only went top 40, maybe? I'm not sure. But that, that's, a good, um, that's a good segue into being a songwriter. Um, mm. There are singers who are really special when they record your songs. You've talked about Sam Cooke. You've talked about Johnny Mathis. You've ca- talked about Dusty Springfield. Um, I just heard, you know, in doing some homework for today, I just heard a cover of I Honestly Love You by the Staple Singers, and Mavis's vocal on that Ooh. song is ridiculous. You know, she brings out, an, an amazing singer will bring out layers of a song that the writer may not even have thought about when the writer was writing the song. Yes, um, I can give you another instance on that. There's a song called uh, that I wrote myself called um, Walking in the Sun. Right, about your dad. My dad very successfully, as a matter of fact, sold insurance, uh, but on the phone, he was really good at it. And, and he would once in a while, we'd have to go from he would have to go from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And this particular day I went with him. He was done with his business late in the afternoon, probably in the fall. And the sun was on an angle. And we we're walking back to the subway to go back to Brooklyn. And it was chilly. And, and my dad said, my dad, the blind guy said, is the sun out across the street? I looked over and said, yeah, Dad, it is. He said, well, let's cross over and walk in in the sun. And we did, and we were warm. Fade out, fade in. Years later, I had my offices at A&M Records when I moved to L.A. And um, I think it was Jerry Moss who said, why why don't you make an album? Write for yourself and make an album for us. So I sat down having absolutely no idea what to do. But um, out came this song called Walking in the Sun, And uh, I'm probably the only songwriter who would have come up with the line. But, you know, the verses say how I was down and now things are great. And the punchline at the end of each section, it wasn't a chorus, each section ended with the line, even a blind man can tell when he's walking in the sun. And I realized, you know, after I wrote it, that it was from that incident that day And a lot of people have cut that song. So uh, going back to what you said about um, interpretations of songs, that song has been cut by an awful lot of people. And uh, Percy Sledge. Wow. A to central R&B artist, right? Sign of Atlantic, yep. Man Loves a Woman, right? Mm-hmm. Got a version of that that is exactly what you just described. Wow. When, I didn't even know about it. Somebody told me about it. And when I heard it, I, I felt so, you know, I, I don't take credit 
really for what I've done because I, I didn't study. I didn't go to college to learn how to write pop hits or country hits or whatever. So, the, you know, I, I say it's, it's, it's in creative times, it's, it's fun to be me for me. But when I heard it, what he brought to it, it was also recorded by Glenn Campbell. Right. Glenn had the hit with it. That would be the other end of the right. spectrum, you know. But what, what he did with it, I, I just felt so, so cool that the kid from Brooklyn wrote this, this song. And in the way he interpreted it, it's just incredible. And, and when I write a song and I get, and, and Johnny Mathis records and you hear that classic voice for oh Springfield singing back a song that you're teaching her. Right. And it's those moments where the, the reality of, yes, it's a good song, but wow, when, you, when it's interpreted and performed by a great vocalist, and there's more to just the sound, you know. It's it's I, I artists that I need to that need to be told when as a producer I say, look, do me a favor and do yourself a favor, sing the words, not the notes. Right. That's where the emotion is. And people like Johnny Mathis and Dusty Springfield, they know that inherently. They know that they can trust their vote, their voice, their throat. Right. It's it's really like watching a great artist at work. Because, yeah, their art is in the interpretation of the copyright. And when you're giving them, you know, when Percy Sledge is reading a lyric, like, you know, even a blind man knows when he's walking in the sun, he's bringing something to it that you probably weren't thinking about when you wrote the song. You know, I, that's a great point. I, it, would be, it would have been great to know if he related to the theme, lyric theme right. of the in some way. Right. Well, some of the other legendary artists who have cut your songs, um, we're jumping around a little bit, but, you know, the list is on and on. The Beach Boys, Elton John, U2, The Ramones, staple singers like we talked about, The Carpenters, Linda Ronstadt, obviously, you know, Ronnie Spector and Darlene Love and The Crystals. But I didn't know until just, you know, getting prepped for today about Larry Lurex. That might be my favorite. Larry Lurex, do you know that name? No. There is a cover of your song, I Can Hear Music, most famously probably by the Beach Boys, but there is a cover of I Can Hear Music done by Larry Lurex, which was a pseudonym for Freddie Mercury from Queen. Yes. <laughs> which I didn't know. So thank you for teaching me that. That's awesome. I can hear Then he did, and then she kissed me. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit. In 1960, you meet Ellie. So what do you remember? Obviously, a professional partnership, a personal partnership, romantic partnership, rather. You got married. You wrote together exclusively. You both signed, ultimately, to Lieber and Stoller at Trio Music. What, what do you remember about that? Yeah, and then, of course, we formed Redbird Records, which was a great adventure. Um, well, Elliot and I met when I was four, and I think she was three, <laughs> at, at a wedding of her cousin, her first cousin, to my one of my first cousins. So fade in and fade out from that little scene, Lola and Billy were their names. I was at their home. Billy was like, my here taught me to drive, and he was a very cool guy. And uh, they were telling me about Ellie, who's graduating from Hofstra College as queen of the college, actually, and as a music major. And uh, I had had 
some success by that time. And she said, you guys have to meet. It was, it was kind of like an arranged musical marriage. It was like, there was no way that wasn't going to happen. It was, we, we got along just famously, got married and uh, had a bunch of copyrights. Didn't have any kids. <laughs> well, the copyrights are your children. I know that there's a misconception that you've mm. spoken about. When Ellie passed away, there was one obituary that talked about how she just understood lyrically the mind of a teenage girl. And you're reading this, you're like, wait a second, uh, I wrote the lyrics? So, you know, which is interesting too, because with Goffin and King, Jerry wrote a lot of the lyrics and Carol wrote the music. Yes. But I mean, and not that Carol obviously went on to write her own lyrics. And certainly Ellie wrote lyrics. It's not that I wrote every word, every line myself, but what I bring to the table is usually the title, the story, and, and the lyric. And I, I don't write them down until they're done, but I kind of sing them out. Likely is not that, be if not the melody, a part of it. And um, so I was going to comment on, the, on that obituary, but I decided uh, it's kind of like not cool. <laughs> well, the music that you two created has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time. The run that you two went on as professional partners in 1963, you and Ellie had seven songs in the top 20 at the same time. In 1964, you had 17 hits on the chart at the same time. You've been quoted as saying that you were at the front of the wave. You were young people creating music for other young people. And that hadn't really been done. And that was, you know, the magic of the Brill Building there was really nothing to compare it to. So it wasn't like you guys were th saying, well, that's how they did it. You were just doing it. Exactly. There, there, was, no, there, there was no template. And, and that was the, it wasn't a scary thing. It was a very freeing thing. There was nothing to look back at, even though, uh, I mean, I grew up, with the music of the pre-50s, you know, the big bands and all that, uh, Perry Como and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, the, the crooners. Middle of the road. Yeah, at least. And and during the 50s, it all, it went from 78s to 45s right. and right. You know, all that good stuff. And I think I forgot the question. <laughs> I was just saying that you were at the front of the wave. Nobody was doing it. So there was nothing to compare to. And you guys, you know, I, I can only imagine the electricity inside the Brill Building and inside 1650 and the, the, just the volume of legendary copyrights coming out of those buildings. Talk about some of the people, the cast of characters in the movie of your life, Jeff. You know, obviously there's you and Ellie. They're the other Brill Building and 1650 writers that we talked about with Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Howard Greenfield and Neil Sedaka. But there's also Lieber and Stoller. There's also Burt Burns. There's also George Goldner. There's also Phil Spector. There's also Shadow Morton. This is a movie, you know, with these legends. Um, you know, obviously I grew up in the l early to mid-70s and was just hearing these songs, you know, as the soundtrack to what I was doing in my life. But these are, you know, just legends after legends after legends. What what can you tell us about some of these characters? Well, of course, Lieber and Stoller, after I was with Arnold Shaw's company, I went with another small publisher that was literally next door. That's how I met them. And Ellie had uh, already, somehow, I forget how, met them. And we all formed Redbird Records, which... Uh, with, people... with George Goldner, right? George Goldner, right. He was the head of national um, payola. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we used to say, uh, well, you're mixing a record if there was a, or a recording, if there was a mistake, you say, I will get it in the mix. Uh, and if we're, if there was something going wrong with the mix, I used to say, ah, don't worry about it. We'll get it in the payola. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told you a couple of weeks ago when you and I first spoke that the Lieber and Stoller autobiography that they wrote with David Ritz 
you know, it's one of the best music books I've ever read. And there, I read it a long time ago, so I'm probably getting parts of the story wrong. But George Goldner is a legendary figure, you know, both famously and infamously, and spent a lot of time and lost a lot of money at the track. And, you know, was indebted to Roulette Records and Morris Levy and a lot of other people. But there's a story that is told in the Lieber and Stoller book where George Goldner was given a stack of records, stack of acetates, of demos, in the Redbird office. And he spent the entire night going through all of these acetates. And when Mike and Jerry came in in the morning, there was one record that he said, that's your hit, and that was Chapel of Love. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get And even if that's not the story, I just love that story. So I'm going to keep telling it. <laughs> well, that's that's the story I heard. That he he he. They took an ad. We took an ad. We were all part of Redbird. Me, Ellie, and I. You know, a piece of it as well. Uh, he took an ad, a full page ad in Billboard. It said with a picture of the single saying, "This is a hit." Wow. <laughs> he was a character, but, huh? Uh, but the enthusiasm that he had, uh, he would come to the studio when we would uh, f- have finished producing, let's say, uh, Chapel of Love, right? We had the Dixie Cups and and the Shangri-Las, you know, Leader of the Pack and all that. But whatever the single was that we finished, he'd come down to the studio and sit right in the middle you know, at the console, and we'd blast it through the big Altec speakers, and he'd sit there with his eyes closed, listening. And when it was done, he'd slowly open his eyes and stand up, and he, the typical studio chairs, you know, heavy chairs that are comfortable, he would pick it up and throw it against the wall. (laughs) I mean, and he would just go nuts. I mean, and the studio, of course, didn't appreciate it, but at the same time, we gave him a lot of business. They actually made him a throwing stool, a <laughs> light wood, and, and they would hand it to him after he heard it. And he would, you know, make a face like, ah, oh, this isn't too good. And he would toss it against the wall ceremoniously. Oh, that's funny. But that kind of enthusiasm was what was going on in the industry at the time. Yeah, and it must be infectious to the songwriters and the producers because you're like, you want him to throw that stool against the wall. Absolutely. And then, you know, he would he would get in his uh, Lincoln convertible, I think it was, and take off across the country and, uh, and come back. It was a hit, you know. A real character. There is a an original theatrical musical about his life that I have never seen, but I would like to. It's called The Boy from New York City. And oh. it's about the story of George Goldner, who, you know, unfortunately, like some of the other um, characters in this movie, we lost way too young and, and way too early. You know, Burt Burns being another one. Talk about Burt and talk about Bang Records and Neil Diamond. Well, Burt Bert was my best friend. And um, Ellie and I brought Neil to Lieber and Stoller, and it just it really wasn't working out. And uh, I said, look, all due respect, um, you know, going to take him over to Bang Records, which we did, and Bert got it. And um, that was it was a great experience, a great experience producing, you know, someone who was recording their own material as opposed to stuff that I wrote. Right. And you never got territorial about producing something that you didn't write, right? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it was it was obvious. I, I don't think I, I would have signed. We signed him to Ellie and I signed him to our production company. But um, I don't think I would have signed him if he wasn't a writer. Huh. And I honestly... Uh, not the kind of vocal sound that I think is great, but him singing his songs, 
That, and that, that's the most valuable thing. Well, some of those songs, some of the early Neil Diamond songs that everybody knows, whether it's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon or Cherry Cherry or Solitary Man or Red Red Wine, all of those records were produced by you. Yes, yes. And it was, uh, it, it was, it was fun to make fancy pop records. Right, a little more upmarket. Uh, you know, and, and, and a trombone solo as opposed to a guitar solo. There you go. But I made all, I had to keep the records. Basically, it had to work with him and his guitar. And those records, they're, they're timeless. The productions are timeless. You listen to them now, they don't sound dated at all. Talk about Neil's song, I'm a Believer. You produced Neil's version of that, but the most famous version of that you produced on The Monkees. Well, yes. At this point, I, I can't tell the real story. The Monkees were... They had their first record out called Last Train to Clarksville. They obviously had this very popular, right off the get-go, TV show. And I got a call from uh, Don Kirshner. And uh, he said, look, you, you can't tell anybody, but Last Train to Clarksville hasn't sold a million. And we got the hottest show on TV. Would you want to take over producing and writing or doing whatever for the monkeys, obviously, sure. And um, had the Neil Diamond song in mind immediately and uh, and cut it with them, and it, it was record of the year. R-I-A-A, record of the year. Well, you've, ha you've had a bunch of those, but if you listen to the actual produced record produced by Jeff of the monkeys, I'm a Believer, it's so iconic. Who was the band? Is that a band that you put together? Oh, yeah. They're just studio musicians. The Monkees was put together with Kirshner and, and the producers of the show, and they cast quickly. I mean, Mike Nesmith had a cute hat on. I think that's what got him the part. But they they weren't like great singers, and, and they certainly weren't, in my opinion, like musicians of the quality that you need in the studio. So, you know, they, they sing okay, and they, but it was, it was like, okay, the idea was to make a hit. Then I saw her face, now I'm a believer, not a trace, a doubt in my mind, I'm in love, I'm a believer, I couldn't leave her if I tried. And you made a hit. You made a bunch of hits. A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You was also a Neil Diamond written, Jeff Barry produced Smash for the Monkees. One, you know, there, there's so much to talk about and not a ton of time to do it. But one Burt Burns story that I heard before we move on is that Burt Burns famously worked with Van Morrison. And is it true that you sang some of the outro of Brown Eyed Girl because Van had to go home to Ireland? <laughs> He had, he had gone home, and then Bert realized that he hadn't overdubbed the ending. He did the first one, you know, the part that says, uh, do you remember when we used to sing? Sha-la-la-la-la. So he didn't, he didn't want to fly him back in just to do that. Uh, it would just be expensive and time-consuming. And... Um, People who knew me knew that I would imitate people. For, for friends, I would do Elvis Presley demos and, uh, you know, I would, oh, 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 no, imitate Presley. <laughs> so, yeah, I went in the studio and, and sang it. And once you know that it's me singing on the end, you can hear the difference. But, uh, so the version that everyone knows of Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl is actually Van Morrison featuring Jeff Barry at the very end. That's right. <laughs> Do you remember when we used to sing?
You know, something else that's fascinating about your songs and your career is that you never wrote your songs specifically for an artist. You would write, an artist would come in, they would cut the song. Whoever was next, you know, kind of to the studio, you would present the music, except for one time. You want to talk about the song that you and Ellie and, and Phil Spector worked on, To Order? With Phil's label, you know, you had all these basically girl groups, except maybe for Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans. I think there was a male lead on that. No. It was Darlene Love, wasn't it? Was it? I think she was the lead of everything. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many stories about what she did and didn't sing on and who, who did what. Well, you got to write your book, Jeff. I, I, I'm, I'm ready to read it, even though it's not written yet. Well, Pete, you know, I started in the opening line is life's a movie. There you go. Yeah, that's not surprising because, that, you know, that's really how I, I, I see it through the a camera lens. But um, so wh- whoever was next on, needed a single on his label, that's who would get the next song. And except when he signed Tina Turner. And there was a chance to do a little more uh, bigger range octavely speaking, and uh, maybe a little more sophisticated lyrically. So we actually wrote River Deep Mountain High for Tina. That song famously is said to be the song that drove Phil, you know, into being reclusive and a bit of a hermit because it didn't succeed the way that he expected it to. Do you have a, uh, a recollection of that? To the best of my knowledge, here's Wahabam. He supposedly, before Riverdeep came out, he, and it sounds like Phil, he insulted in some way or did something bad, re, uh, some major disc jockey. Huh. And disc jockeys were it. I mean, you needed to get on the radio. And the, so supposedly, you know, it got around among the disc jockeys and they said, well, screw him. We're not going to play his next record. Wow. And Riverdeep came out and was a hit, as I recall, everywhere except here. I think a group called Deep Purple had a hit with it, but um, they didn't play the Tina Turner. And so for his to get revenge now on them, on the DJs, he said, I'm not going to make any more records. Got it. That was going to be their punishment. Got it. And of course, his wife, uh, Ronnie, was the, the Ronettes needed a new record. So he knows that I probably the only living person at this time who can accurately reproduce his sound. So he said, would you record Ronnie? And uh, so we wrote, I can hear music. And I went in and, and recorded, produced it. And I, I, I really, I really messed up. It sounded really like a Phil Spector record to the point where knowing Phil, I couldn't do that to him. I couldn't play. And I, so I, I un Waldorf sounded it. <laughs> And took took a lot out of it, so right. it was extraordinary. Yeah, it but but later, you know, great copyrights never die. That song I can hear music was a big hit by the Beach Boys a few years later. Our record got on the charts, but of course, uh, when uh, the Beach Boys got a hold of it, that was they did an incredible. It, there's an example of an artist making it their own. Oh, yeah. No, Brian Wilson is a big Jeff Barry fan. And there's actually a quote where he calls your song, Be My Baby, the perfect pop record. So, 
you know, you guys are, are kindred spirits creatively for sure. And going back to Don Kirshner, so after Don Kirshner uh, stopped working with the Monkees, he had an idea for another show. And you had stopped writing with Ellie and started writing with Andy Kim, and you and Andy ended up writing a big, big, big hit song, the biggest hit song of, of 1969 for this TV show. You want to talk about the Archies? Yeah. Well, Don, yeah, I was his, obviously his first call. And he said, look, they're going to bring the Archie comic books, which is Archie, Jughead, Veronica, and Betty, and Reggie, the, the bad guy. They're going to take that comic book and bring it to Saturday morning television for the for preschoolers, that was the demographic target audience. And at the time, I literally had a three and four year old. So yeah, Andy and I wrote Sugar Sugar. It was uh, record of the year. And that to me is, I still marvel at the success of the Archies. That was not only record of the year, where I think we had at least one other top 10 and maybe two, but certainly another top teen by a group that didn't exist. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. You are my candy girl. And you got me wanting you. Honey. Oh, sugar, sugar. That to me to this day is uh, yeah, mind-blowing. Well, it just show, shows you the power of music and the power of great, catchy songwriting. The fact that you had um, kids who were three and four, I've heard you say that you wrote that song for that age group, a song that is so infectious that, you know, the words really don't matter. It's just the spirit of the music is going to be, you know, inside of everybody's brain. And hopefully, you know, that's the, the fuel to make it a hit. Well, you know, Pete, in those days, I was very conscious that I was creating audio entertainment for young minds. I mean, when I sat down to write, uh, it would be for an 11 to 16 year old girl, yeah. you know, buying records. But I was very aware, especially with the Archies, that the preschoolers were not going to go down to Tower Records and buy records. Right. The parents right. like right. song. And uh, it was, uh, you know, part of the assignment. Right. And it worked. Assignment. Well done. So in 1971, you headed west, you moved to L.A. That must have been a culture shock for an East Coast kid. Oh, boy. I, um, yeah, coming out the first time at LAX with my luggage. <laughs> but I remember looking up at the palm tree, <laughs> this lone palm tree in the middle of this bustling airport and, and saying to myself, this is good. <laughs> I mean, I, I joke about me walking around town, walking around L.A. with somebody and saying, what is that over there? And they said, where? I said, over there in front of those stores. And they said, Jeff, that's a parking spot. <laughs> and, and, and I said, who are those weird women over there? And they go, what do you mean? You know, those women with the, they say, oh, those are blondes. <laughs> So a couple of years into your stay in L.A., which you're still there many years later, you were introduced to Peter Allen, and the two of you wrote a song for him called I Honestly Love You. And a publisher didn't care that it was, you know, perhaps earmarked for somebody else, and they played it for Olivia Newton-John, who recorded it and won the Grammy for Record of the Year, which is just oh. crazy. You know, you're talking about songs of the year and records of the year and Grammys of the year, and, you know, it's just the hits keep coming. Well, it was the um, uh, the American Music Awards Song of the Year as well. Wow. The, the public vote song. They came, they wanted me to record him. He's an interesting character and just, he's really, we really had a great time. We only wrote three songs together, but they played it. Somebody in the publishing department did play for Olivia and said, came back and said, oh, Olivia loves your song. And then said, what, what song? And anyway, I discussed it with him and we decided let's let her do it uh, as opposed to him saying no, I record it. 
I believe that the label really hated it right. because I didn't realize till way later, years and years later, there's no bass and no drums right. on that record. Right. Made it like the demo, which was just him playing and singing at the same time, because I, I knew I needed a demo on that for the chords. Right. He, he Peter had 11 fingers, you know. Huh. Well, it worked. It was a massive, massive number one record and Grammy award-winning song. Maybe I hang around here a little more than I should. We both know I got somewhere else to go. But I got something to tell you that I never thought I would. But I believe you really are to You talk about, you know, the people hearing your music. One thing that our listeners may not know is that you created some of the most iconic television theme songs of all time while you were in L.A. You got a call from Norman Lear in 1975 asking you if you would write the TV theme for his new show called The Jeffersons. Yes. And um, I remember having discussions with him. I did, a, I think, three of his TV shows I said I I don't want I'd rather not write a, a song called The Jeffersons. <laughs> and, but Norman Norman is maybe the last of my heroes that have stayed in that category to me. He was such a pleasure to work with. If he trusted you, he just let you go and do what you wanted to do, you know. And he would invite me to the uh, filming of the pilot. And uh, then I would, you know, write it from that. And um, it, it, was, it was just wonderful working with him. And, and interestingly enough, I, I can tell people titles of, of my hits. That one will stir more interest mm. than most. So when you were on set of the pilot, the whole we're moving on up to the east side, finally got a piece of the pie, did that all come to you in that moment? No, 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 not at all. It happened when I sat down to actually write it. And you wrote it with one of the cast members of the show, right? Uh, not that show. I wrote it with um, Jeanne Dubois. Oh, from Good Times, right. Yes. Um, an an African-American woman. And, um, you know, she brought that sensibility to it. She had never sung anything before. And I got her to do the vocal. She is the singer on that. That's a great vocal. And there's a, a big choir behind her, too. There's, there's a, a group, yeah. Her performance is, she sounds like the wife of... Right, right, the characters of the show. Yeah, which is, you know, amazing. And the another Norman Lear show that you did the theme song for was One Day at a Time, um, which, you know, anyone who was around to either see the original show in the 70s or more recently to hear Gloria Estefan cover the theme song for the Norman Lear produced remake of One Day at a Time would know your song, This Is It. Also, Without Us in the 80s, the theme song for Family Ties, famously done by Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams. You know, it's it's really unbelievable that all of this came from one person. Uh, well, it was and still is the most wonderful thing to do, and it is create, to uh, invent and make up something that didn't exist before. And it was, it was so exciting. And uh, I, I, I wish I had taken notes and pictures, you know. <laughs> Not only as a songwriter and as a record producer, but you were also a label owner. You talked about your interest in Redbird Records, but you also had your own label called Steed Records in the 70s. Did you like being yeah. on that side, being a record label owner? 
Well, you know, the thing is, I didn't have to do anything other than what I've always done. You know, when it's set up right, all I really needed to do was create product and, and hand it to the promotion department. The head of promotion by that, uh, at that time by was Freddie DeMann, legendary Freddie DeMann, yeah. who went on to manage Madonna, right? And, and Michael Jackson. Sure. He was national promotion. So, you know, yes, I had uh, uh, three floors, brownstone with uh, offices on the first floor, a studio on the second floor, and a little apartment on the top floor. But still, all I really had to do, and, and keeping people happy and working with people, that's easy. But that's really all I needed to do is create. So as, as the owner of the label, there was really nothing to do other than... <laughs> right. Surround yourself with good people. I used to call it, like, I felt like I was being the queen bee. All I had to do was lay eggs and everything. <laughs> everything else in the hive would take care of itself. You know, I would love to close out by talking about the craft and the art of songwriting, um, oh. where, you know, you, you have said that there is definitely a an art and a science to songwriting. And I've heard you say something that I had never heard before. We've all all heard that another word for a chorus is a hook, you know, the hook of the song being the chorus of the song. But I've never heard someone call the first verse the bait. And you said the first verse is the bait, the chorus is the hook. I love that. Yeah, well, they have to get to the hook. And so they got to get they have to be kept interested in the verse. Um, except for Sugar Sugar, which started with the hook. Right, right. <laughs> I, I don't know what made me start the, the record with, with the chorus, but, uh, you know, why not? Um, yes, uh, but that, that's true. You, you need to get their attention and hold it uh, until the, the hook, the chorus. And somebody once said to you in writing a song, I'm having a problem with the second verse. I've nailed the first verse, but I can't figure out the second verse. And your solution to them was what? Well, that, that's that's probably the only one of the only real hints. I don't even call it a lesson, but I can give to the songwriters out there. I, I have found, and it works for me to this day. You, you get an idea that, for a song, a story, or something you want to say, and you're you're enthusiastic about it and you sit down at your instrument and you write that first verse and that chorus and the hook is there and it's great and then you get to the second verse and you're blank and it, I say to the people perhaps you have you've said everything you wanted to say in the first verse because you wanted to get it out so consider making your first verse your second verse, and you then then go back and write a first verse, which is the backstory right. that leads up to right. you, you know, writing the song in the first place. What what's the backstory? And, and in, in classes, that always gets them writing and making notes of that one, and it really does work. Very smart. There's one thing that I'd like to bring up that I doubt anyone has ever said to you before. Oh, um, <laughs> and it's a testament to your ears and how you can spot talent. I oh. listened to an interview with you from 2014. Hmm. And the gentlemen that were interviewing you on the craft of songwriting at, were asking you, what are you working on now that you're excited about? Hmm. And this is back eight years ago. And you hmm. said... You mentioned a couple of projects you were working on. One of them, you said, I am working with a young girl who is one of the most talented singer-songwriters I have ever worked with in my life. And at the yeah, time, nobody knew the name. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this. First name starts with an S. Correct. You mentioned a young singer-songwriter named Sasha Sloan. And in the eight years since... 
you gave that interview, Sasha Sloan has gone on to be one of the biggest, young, exciting, successful pop songwriters in the world. I I, I got a call from Warner Chapel of Music. As a matter of fact, they wanted me to work with this young lady. They thought it would benefit her. And um, she and I just hit it off. We wrote a, several songs together and I and her pitch and everything she does is just the way she sings, it's just incredible. And I, I, I said, Sasha, you must perform. I would love to introduce you to the world. And she absolutely had no interest in, in recording whatsoever. And I, But I, I got her, I, I booked her into a, a club here called a Hotel Cafe with just her and her keyboard. And she just wonderful, but she didn't like it. And then she went back east. We lost touch. And then uh, a couple of years later, she had blue hair and was Sasha Sloan. There you go. And uh, just put out a new record as recently as two weeks ago. Um, oh. So she is performing and recording and writing and having hits with Camila Cabello and Katy Perry and Pink. And, you know, it's just amazing how the legacy continues, how we all pay it forward, especially, you know, you finding someone, you know, so young and, and, and talented and encouraging them the way you did. Yeah, she's, but you could spot that talent a mile away. I think she's coming to L.A. I have to check her, uh, her tour uh, schedule. I'd love to surprise her. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm friendly with her manager, so I'm going to let him know that we had a conversation. One thing that I wanted to go back to earlier, I remembered who did, on Motown, who did the cover of River Deep. It was the Supremes and the Four Tops in 1970 doing it together, um, a a version that went top 15 produced by Ashford and Simpson. So there you go. (laughs) Full of surprises. Know about it. There you go. So wrapping up, you know, there, there's so many other songs that you've been part of that we just don't have the time to talk about. But I, I think you know, Rolling Stone put out a list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Six of those 500 songs were written by you and Ellie more than any other non-performing writing team. How do we wrap this up, Jeff? How do we wrap it up? How do we, you know, what can we leave as like final words from the great Jeff Barry? Oh, my goodness. I I tend to want to address the people who want to write songs and say that there's never been a society uh, on the face of the earth discovered that didn't have their own form of music and, and song. And, and, of course, dance goes along with that. But it is inherent in, in humans to, to need music in their lives. I, I believe when we were coming out of the caves and, and the brains were developing, it was all about one thing, survival. And I can see happening the following. The, you know, we were like 40 people and they would move along and eat berries and before fire, you know, they would <laughs> moving all day. And I could see where uh, something would happen and, and somebody might die or something really important. And and they would, and I always use like, somebody ate those red berries and they died. And then they said, now let's pass this around. Don't eat the red berries, you'll die in whatever their language might've been. And somewhere along the, in history, it was just when melody and rhythm was not discovered, but was became part of of, of the hum, of humanity. It was discovered that don't eat the red berries, you'll die. Sticks. If you put it to melody, it'll stick. And 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 there might have been the singer of songs at a certain point where you sit around a fire, and they would sing the life-giving and important facts put to simple melody. I could see that actually happening. And they would sing, don't eat the red berries, you'll die. Now everybody, and they would sing, pass pass it along through generations. And to this day, we'll get in the car, spend a lot of money to go see that singer of songs in person. To this day, we revere the singer of songs. And it, it it is a wonderful privilege 
to to for me and I think anyone who does it to supply and and to create and bring more um, stories in in the form of music to the world. Well, you said we revere the singer of songs, but we also revere the incredible songwriters as well. And you are at the top of that heap, top of the mountain. So really, really appreciate you taking the time and, you know, talking to us this week on Rock and Roll High School and really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff Barry. My pleasure. Our thanks to songwriting legend Jeff Barry for joining us today. Don't forget to check out our playlist for this episode at our website, rockschoolpodcast.com. It really gives you a sense of just how massive the impact Jeff's writing has had on popular music. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastino, Catherine Hoppy, Kayla Flores, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on.